Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, we are going to begin Exodus chapter 4 today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can head that direction. If you are using an ESV scripture journal, we'll be on page 16 today. Uh, before we jump right into the text, um, there's a couple things I need to mention to you, two things I need to say. Uh, first of all, you saw today for the second time the Vision Implementation Team introduction video. So myself and six other Covenant members are, uh, I guess, together, we, we form the Vision Implementation Team, sort of our... And so uh, we have a format that we've adopted, we have a plan, and I want to just quickly help you guys understand what that plan is. So you saw the team on the video, any of those people should generally be able to answer some of the questions that you have. Uh, if you're more comfortable approaching one of them, then you might be coming and speaking to all of the members of the team, that's totally fine. Uh, we're also going to make an online, um, I guess, a form available to you if you have an idea that you want to submit that way. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. First, I want to mention this to you. Uh, we have an extra half sheet in a chair near you or in the chair you're in today. Uh, this says Vision Implementation Team Forums. What is a Vision Implementation Team Forum? Well, it's a mouthful. Uh, we call ourselves the VIT. That's a little easier to say. Uh, the forums are going to be live, in-person opportunities for you, the membership of the church, to recommend or propose ministries to us the vision implementation team. What we're hoping to do is have you, the membership, be able to identify needs that you see in our community, within our church, maybe around the world or in the nation, and either recommend an existing ministry that we would jump on board with, that we would start participating in, or recommend that we begin a ministry. What even is a ministry? Well, ministry is just the work of a Christian. It's the things you do in your life because you love Jesus. So it doesn't have to have an executive director. It doesn't have to have its own name. It doesn't have to have a 401c3 nonprofit status. It can just be a group of us that get together once a year, one day, and do one thing. That can be a ministry. So we're not trying to build a bunch of titanic, huge external organizations, but we do think it's important to hear from you. And so I have one really big request is that you participate. The thing that will keep this from working is if nobody speaks up. That's really the only way that this doesn't work for our church. Those are not good reasons to stay quiet. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, please, if you can, choose to participate. If you have a ministry idea or if you just want to ask questions, if you want to kind of pick on the language that we've used to clarify what our vision is, come to one of these in-person forums. They're going to happen in the basement of this building. I think they're all scheduled for the first Sunday of their respective months except July because we didn't want to be too close to July 4th. And what that's going to be is we're going to take a look at each principle of the vision one month at a time. We're going to hear from you guys as the membership. We're going to receive submissions from you, recommendations. And then the team will come back together a couple weeks later and discuss those and begin to build a plan. And hopefully over time, we will begin to coalesce a little bit and have some ideas of ministries that we're really excited to recommend back to the church that we get invested in with our time, with our finances, with our energy, things like that. So if you have any further questions, like I said, come and get me, grab another elder, uh, pull aside somebody on the implementation team, and please pray for us. Uh, all of these people are as busy as you are, if not more, and they need your prayers to be focused, to hear from God, to know how to prioritize their time. So that's thing one. Thing two I need to mention to you is a clarification and an apology. So last week, I made an offhand comment in the middle of explaining to you that thinking of God like an egg is heretical, which is right. That's true. It is heresy. God is not an egg. Uh, he's not egg white, egg yolk, and egg shell. Those are three separate things that mutually coexist, and that denies part of the Trinity, and you probably don't even care about this. But the integrity of this stage, the integrity of what I communicate is important enough that I want to make sure and clarify to you. The comment that I made offhand is I said that I think that that heretical view is called antinomianism, and it's not. 
That heresy, I should get my heresies straight, right? That heresy believes, antinomianism would purport to you, that obedience is unnecessary, it's useless, because Jesus' grace is so big and so consuming that all of the law is nullified. This is not a claim Jesus ever made. Jesus claimed that he fulfilled the law, not that he came to get rid of the law, which is one of the things the Pharisees were accusing him of when they didn't like him. The idea that God is one person in three forms or three essences in one person is either modalism or tritheism. And there's a fine line there. We're splitting hairs. You don't care. I don't care. We're not heretics. But I want to make sure you understand that is what thinking of God is like water, steam, and ice, or eggshell, egg white, egg yolk, if you've ever heard those things before. Those are the heresies. And if you really like this, maybe we'll just feature a heresy every week, right? Heresy of the week. You guys can get to know them. That's not a good idea. We won't do that. Okay, so Exodus chapter 4 today. To quickly catch you up on what happened last week, because this is the middle of the same conversation, uh, Moses is speaking to God for the first time personally. And God is speaking back to Moses, which is a really wild thing. And I, helped, I tried to help you last week. I hope this was helpful to you to just understand the scale of difference between Moses and God. A helpful analogy to think of that I don't think is heretical is that Moses is kind of like an ant. All of us are ants in an ant farm. And God is kind of like a person who has that ant farm on his desk, in his office, at home, on a bookshelf. That's the difference in scale that we're talking about. God is not just a larger, stronger human. He is essentially different. His essence is different. What he's made up of, how limited or unlimited he is, totally different from humankind. And so Moses is experiencing this for the first time. He asked God a question last week. He says, who am I to you, God? What do you think I am that you would send me to Egypt? And God told Moses, you're a person whom I will be with. That's all you need to know. The thing that sets you apart from every other person on the planet is I'm going to be with you. And that will mean that you'll have what you need when you need it. You need to calm down and trust me. So then Moses asked God a second question. He says, well, who are you? If you're going to be with me, who are you? Who am I supposed to tell everybody I'm talking to? And God says his name to Moses. He says, I am who I am. I'm who I've always been. I'm who I am now. And I'm who I'll be forever. And I'm not limited by you. I'm not defined based on anything that you understand. I am so outside of your ability to comprehend me that just trust me when I tell you I'm real. And that's enough for you. I am real. So in the middle of this conversation, Moses spaces out. And I know this because he's about to ask God in chapter 4, verse 1, a question that God already answered in chapter 3, verse 18. Maybe you've had this experience. I don't know if you know any six-year-olds. I live with a six-year-old. And in my house, my six-year-old loves to ask me questions. And if you don't have kids, you're going to probably think I'm exaggerating some of this. These are real-life examples, real questions I've been asked in the last couple of weeks. Questions like, uh, is there any job that a grown-up can have where they don't have to listen to their parents? And sometimes a willingness to change. My daughter will say, well, I don't want to be a teacher anymore because teachers have to listen to their parents. I'll be a police officer instead. Well, police officers have to listen to their parents too. And she'll mope. Uh, I can't get out from underneath you people. That's what she's communicating all the time in our house. She'll ask me things like, uh, why can't mommies have puppies instead of children, instead of human children? What's stopping them? I mean, why not? Puppies are cuter. They're more fun, right? Why don't we do that instead? She'll say to me, why do we have to sleep at night? It doesn't make any sense to me. I think I should be able to stay awake all the time. So in the middle of these questions, which are silly, which in themselves have this kind of inherent misunderstanding of the world, which is the same way that Moses is communicating with God in this story, I have, to, I have to take a deep breath and I have to go, okay, I could either dismiss this and just say it doesn't matter and believe me, or I could try to answer her question, I could try to explain it to her. So I take a deep breath, try to be a good parent, and I try to give her an answer. I try to get into this kind of nonsense world that she lives in and explain it to her. And she'll do this thing where as soon as I start talking, she doesn't listen anymore. I can see it. Her eyes glaze over. She hits one, there's one part she doesn't understand and she's just stuck. And so she'll watch my mouth. And I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. As soon as my lips stop, she'll jump in with a different question. And a lot of times, I already answered that question, 
if she had been listening, she would have known that. But she's so focused on the thing that she can't get over that she can't even listen to me. Uh, in our house, when we give our daughter instructions or we answer a question that she asks, she's not allowed to say why right away because we want everybody in the house to stay alive. And too many whys just kind of gets you closer and closer to the edge where you just kind of are like, mm, this is not going to work anymore. So she has to say yes, and then she can ask why. She has to acknowledge our authority in her life, which is good for her. So she now will put yes and why just into one word. It's all one sound. Yes and why. Yes and why. Yes and why. Yes and why. To the point that the yes is disqualified, right? She doesn't, she's just doing that to not get in trouble. So, so she'll do that. Yes and why. And then I'm like, well, okay, why? Why can't mommies have puppies? Well, uh, because I don't know. I don't know how deep, deep down this hole we want to go, kid. The mommy's biology is different and the puppy and the dog. We don't know. It's not a good thing. But she'll... In the midst of pressing me, in the midst of asking me these, these ridiculous questions, she'll make arguments back. Like if she thinks that she has something to say that's going to change my mind, like if I tell her, you have to go to bed because everybody has to go to bed because our bodies need rest. Well, she'll bring in some fact or idea that she thinks I must not know. She'll say, well, you know, there's this one bat that lives in South America, and it stays awake all night. So I should be able to stay awake all night too, right? And I'm like, no, because you're not a bat, and that bat, I'm not that bat's dad, so I can decide what that bat does. I'm your dad, I can decide what you do. So this is Moses, okay? Moses is freaking out. All he hears God say is, you're going back to Egypt. And then he's just like, Whoa, doesn't hear anything else. Doesn't, I mean, God's repetitive in chapter 3. We read it last week. He says more than one time what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And Moses is just kind of like, I, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. You're going to send me back. I have to go back. That's all he can focus on. And I think the reason why is if you think way back to about a month ago, the last time that we saw Moses interact with the Israelites, they said to him, this is in Exodus chapter 2, who made you a prince and a judge over us. Those are the last words that Moses heard from his kinsmen, his people. He tries to step into their life and help them. They know that he just killed an Egyptian man and tried to bury him in the sand. Nice try. And so Moses is like, they're not going to listen to me. They don't, they don't, I understand that I'm supposed to have this call or whatever to do this thing, but like I tried that one time and it didn't work out for me. And so this isn't going to go well. So as soon as God's words are out of his mouth, the end of chapter 3, hear this beginning in chapter 4. Moses answered God. He said to God, behold, which is silly, because that's like saying to God, look, look at me, God. Behold, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice because they will say the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? A rhetorical question because God already knows. Moses answered him. It's a staff, right? He's out with his sheep. Remember, they're on a mountainside. He's dressed for work today. He has his staff. God says to Moses, throw it on the ground. So he did. He threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And I love this part. And Moses ran from it. He was like, whoa, he's backing up. What's going on here? I don't know Moses isn't cool with snakes. So God says to Moses, hold on, put your hand out. He has to tell him to put his hand out. Put your hand out and catch it by the tail. And so Moses did. I guess God is a little more uh, overwhelming than the snake in this instance. And he caught it, and immediately it becomes a staff again in his hand. Now God answers him and says, this is that they may believe that the Lord and that's in all capitals, so that's God's name, that Yahweh, who is the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses reaches inside the garment that he's wearing, and he, he, when he pulls it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Leprosy is not a thing that we deal with a whole lot. Uh, fun fact for you, armadillos are the only animal in North America that still carry leprosy, and they live in Texas, so be careful if you ever visit Texas. He pulls his hand out, and he has leprosy. Leprosy is where your skin falls off, and it's so numb that you scratch your own flesh away. That's the, the destruction of leprosy, is you just pick and, and pull it yourself, 
almost like a person who's addicted to methamphetamine. You just cannot seem to stop hurting yourself. So Moses pulls his hand out, most devastating disease on the face of the planet. He has it now. Now before he can panic this time, verse 7, God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. Moses sticks it back inside. And when he pulls it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. God says if they will not believe you, or if they will not listen to this first sign, then they may believe the latter. If the snake is not enough for them, then the leprosy should push them over the edge. Verse 9. But if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, then you will take water from the Nile and you will pour it onto dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood. Not like blood, it will become blood. So the first point that God is making to Moses today and to you and I is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God is not limited by your experience. God is not limited by your experience. This is the argument that Moses is making against God. He's arguing with God that it isn't going to go well, that God doesn't know what's going to happen, and this is going to be harder than God is expecting. Moses is making the mistake that we often make when we interact with God. He is overly humanizing God. He's communicating with God like he's just a person. He's communicating with God like he's limited in some way. And Moses has never seen this thing that God is telling him to go do, approaching the Israelites. He's never seen that go well before. And so that builds his primary argument against God why this is a bad idea. Moses is asking in verse 1, what if they don't believe? Or, or why won't they believe me? The way it's written in Hebrew is a little bit hard to understand. So you're, if you're not in the ESV today, it may be actually be written as a question in your Bible. Both are appropriate interpretations. And I think maybe for me anyway, it's sort of hard to understand why Moses is, is pushing God this hard at this point. I mean, God is communicating to Moses through a bush that is on fire, which is not something Moses has ever even heard of in a story before. I mean, he's already outside of his experience. So why would he be surprised that God's going to continue to push the envelope of what he can or cannot do in Moses' life? I think it makes sense that the God who can call Moses out of his life of shepherding on a mountainside in Canaan would also be able to reach the hearts of the elders of Israel. I mean, those feel like comparable things. If, if God can kind of push back against the laws of nature and cause a bush to burn but not burn up, can't he convince a few people of what they need to do and what he's going to do? Logic aside, the question that Moses is asking is proof that he wasn't listening. Way back in chapter 3 in verse 18, God told Moses, he said, they will listen to your voice. They will. He already told Moses they're going to. So what Moses is doing is he's not listening when God says that, and then he's questioning God. Again, he's pushing him. And I think the reason why is Moses isn't really that worried about them listening to Moses. In a few verses, Moses is going to be honest. He's going to finally reveal to us what the real problem is, and it has a lot more to do with him than anybody else being able to hear or understand God. But I, I, I love the interaction in verses 2 through 5 because I see a child freaking out with his dad there comforting him. This is Moses interacting with God. In verse 3, Moses runs off from the staff made of snake. I mean, he's all over the place. He's not stable. This is not the guy you're going to pick for, like, your first team of prophets, right? You and I, if we're picking all the prophets in the Bible, Moses probably isn't pick number one for me. He's timid. He's nervous. He's unsure. He abandoned his calling. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy God would want to use. But that's not right. God always chooses and uses weak people. And in just a couple of verses, Moses is going to highlight his greatest weakness and God will say, even that can't get in my way. But before we get there, I want to help you understand that though Moses is easy to pick on, what I don't want to do today is I don't want to look down on Moses. I want to look across at him as a peer. I want to help you understand you're on the same level as him. And instead of looking down on him and shaming him for not being ready and not being faithful, I want us instead to look up to God with him and experience God in the same way that Moses is. See God as larger than we think. Understand him to be unlimited though we probably think that there are some things he can't do or won't do in our lives, we're wrong about that. 
God works through our experiences. And I think that we experience him most holy. He's most amazing to us when he does what we don't think he can do. Uh, When he breaks out the bonds of our experiences, we often get used to the rhythms of our life. Even church, coming to church on a Sunday can be a thing that we just do because it's a thing that we do. And we just go through the motions because it makes sense to us or somebody expects us to. Or frankly, we just haven't even thought about it. Our alarm goes off, we get up, we put our clothes on, we find our way here, and we aren't even really all the way awake until we go home at some point. What God does is he breaks those things, those rhythms. Not because they're wrong, but because he just isn't bound by them. God is not so much a creature of habit. He's consistent because he doesn't change, but he's not stuck in his own habitual ways. Every moment God is creating, he's redeeming, he's restoring us. Moses' call that he's scared of, the thing that he thinks that these people won't listen to, is to be prophetic. What do you think it means to be a prophet? Well, in the Old Testament, typically it means that you communicate on behalf of God, that you tell God's people they've been wrong, which they probably already know, but you, you make it clear, and then you call them to repentance. You invite them to do something differently. You're not just there to condemn them. Your, your objective and goal is not just to make them feel bad and then walk away and go, ha-ha, I'm better than you. It's to demonstrate a need and then meet that need. And it's not you who meets the need if you're a prophet. It's God. You're pointing people back to God. So Moses is scared of being prophetic. He's scared of speaking something to people that he thinks they won't believe in, something that he may, isn't sure is going to necessarily take root in their lives. He himself is not totally convinced yet that this encounter he's having with God is necessarily genuine. But I wonder if you've considered, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you yourself have a call to be prophetic in your life. I want to clarify what I mean by that. I don't mean prophetic in the sense that you necessarily can see the future. I don't mean prophetic in the sense that you receive revelation outside of God's word. No way. What I mean is prophetic in the sense of Revelation 19.10, which says this. The Apostle John wrote Revelation. He's speaking in first person. He says, I fell down at the feet of an angel to worship him. But the angel said to me, no, don't worship me. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then he clarifies what the spirit of prophecy is. He says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that should exist in our lives. That is what you and I are called to be prophetic about. And no, maybe we're not going to be able to put our finger on the calendar and say it's going to rain on this day or you're going to win the lottery on this day or somebody you love is going to die or... I'm, I'm sensing from the other, you guys ever watch these psychic shows? I'm sensing somebody in the room with, whose name starts with the letter M. Are they here? I mean, we do spooky stuff like that to each other in the church sometimes, and there's no precedent for that in the Bible. What there is a precedent for is speaking truth into a person's life in a way that, in a sense, does tell their future. When you share the gospel with somebody, when you communicate what Jesus can do for someone, you are offering them a different future than the one that they have. You're communicating to them a possibility. Now, the ball is in their court if they're going to take advantage of that or not. But you are saying to them, if you want your future to be different, here's the way that can happen. I do have access to the supernatural. God gave that to me in the form of Jesus. And then he told me to give that, excuse me, to, give that to you as well. So we are called also to be prophetic because Jesus is what prophecy is about. And we're all about Jesus at True North. Like Moses, you and I will be tempted to ask God, what if they don't believe me? What's going to happen if I share my faith with this person and they shame me for it instead, or they reject me, or they mock me, or it ends my relationship with them, it breaks my friendship with them? God is not limited by your experience. God doesn't need you to have been an incredibly successful evangelist on a hot streak of 25 consecutive salvation moments on street corners for you to be an effective part of his kingdom. 
In fact, God might use you once at the very end of your life to share your faith for the only time that it actually turns into repentance and transformation. He might wait all the way until then. And you might share and share and share and share out of faithfulness because you want to be obedient to the God who loves you and he might only take advantage of it once. I don't think so. I think he'll take advantage of it a lot more times than that. But it doesn't matter how successful we think we've been. It doesn't matter where we've seen other people in our lives reject Christianity. You may not know this. It typically takes a person 10 full exposures to the gospel of Jesus Christ before their heart and mind are ready. This is in the West. I can't speak for people all over the world. But in the West, where we have these different barriers and we're kind of inoculated to grace, we tend to reject God nine times before we say, yeah, okay, I'm ready. So what happens if we all quit on number seven or number eight? And we believe that those first six times are indicative of, of the future, of eternity, and so there's no reason to be faithful. This is what Moses is feeling, and God's response to him is, I am not limited by what you've seen. I will do things you've never even thought about before. I already have a plan. I'm going to handle it, and I'll do what's miraculous. And in this Old Testament context, miraculous is turning a stick into a snake. In our New Testament context, the miracle will be making a dead person alive. That's what God can do, and he wants to use us to do it. So let's keep reading in verse 10. Moses now is going to be honest with God, I think for the first time, of what his real problem is with God's plan. Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, very interesting. He doesn't call him capital L-O-R-D, which is his name. He refers to him like, oh, you who are kind of in charge of me. I can already feel Moses kind of backing up. This is becoming less personal. He's trying to kind of back out of the principal's office before things get worse, okay? He says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, which is a silly thing to say because Moses has been talking to God for about 15 minutes. He's like, God, I've never been good at speaking, and even talking to you now today hasn't all of a sudden made me able to speak incredibly eloquently. Right, of course it hasn't. This kind of demonstrates that Moses doesn't really know how God works. He says, I'm slow of speech, I'm slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not me? The Lord? You know who you're talking to, Moses? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth. I'll be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. But Moses argues again, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. That's the most honest thing he could have said. That's it. He's been waiting this whole time to get there, okay? Each of his excuses, God is dismissed, and finally Moses takes a deep breath and goes, I don't want to do this, God. I like the sheep better. Let me just stay with the sheep. I'm good at doing this. So God gets frustrated. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses, and he says, what about Aaron, your brother, who is also a Levite? I know that he can speak well. Look, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you will speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and I will be with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. Calm down, Moses. I've got this. Aaron will speak for you to the people, and he will be your mouth, and you will be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs, which is so funny that he kind of has to pat Moses on the back and go, and don't forget the stick. Here you go. Go. We're done. Go. It's time to work. And that's it. That's the last that God will speak directly to Moses on the mountainside in that moment, okay? So the second big idea here is that God is not even limited by our weakness. No, he's not limited by our experience, what we've seen in other people, what we've come to expect based on the life we've lived, but he's also not limited by how bad we are at stuff. And we're really bad at a lot of things. God is, is running out of patience with Moses at this point in the story. And I, I think I get it because Moses doesn't really want to speak to Pharaoh. The first question he asks is good, right? Who am I? Okay, good. Ask God that. That's helpful. The second question is great. Who are you? Again, be sure that you're speaking about God the right way. Question three, what if they don't really believe? Okay, I understand that you're nervous, Moses, right? You're, you're, Moses is kind of taking advantage of God's office hours here a little bit and won't leave the situation alone. But 
No, Moses has to push and push and push until finally the truth comes out from underneath all of his excuses. And Moses just honestly really doesn't want to be God's prophet. So Moses, God says, okay, to Moses, I'll use Aaron as well. Aaron will be the prophet. Does that make you feel better, Moses? Now you have a prophet, okay? Are we good? You're my prophet. Prophet has a prophet. There's two of you. Between the two of you, you will figure it out, Moses, okay? We're going to be fine. We're going to handle this together. Moses doesn't even get a chance to respond, which I think is cool. God just kind of wraps it up and sends him on his way. What I think is interesting is that Moses knows his, his speech is poor. Um, different scholars, different interpreters of Scripture at different points have interpreted this passage to mean that Moses has some kind of speech impediment, maybe that he has a stutter. Uh, there's something about his mouth and tongue that mechanically doesn't work. That's the way that the Hebrew is written. And so he is struggling even to communicate with God now. The idea of standing in front of the Pharaoh and public speaking on the largest scale in civilization is mortifying to him. He cannot imagine being sent by God to do that. Now, what I think is cool is that for God, God is stooping low to speak to Moses. He's come down to Moses, and he's being very gracious and kind. And instead of just saying, forget it, Moses, you're not going to do a good job, so I'll find somebody else, he calms down and he says, okay, I'll give you extra signs. He gives Moses the signs. Moses says, well, I don't really want to go, and my mouth doesn't work. He says, okay, then I'll add your brother to the mix, okay? We can do this together. It's going to be okay. I'm going to walk alongside you. Don't worry. I can do things that are improbable and even seem impossible. What I want to remind you is that in the weakness of Moses, we see a theme that's been present in the book of Exodus rising back up to the surface again. It's coming up out of the water so we can see it. If you remember when we sprinted through the book of Genesis quickly in two weeks, we said that God is always working out his covenants because he's working toward reconciliation and his covenants are how he reveals that slowly over time, his grace, and that the tools he uses to work those covenants into human society are weak people. They're people who really have no business being used by a holy God. They're people whom God has to forgive before he can use. And so in the person of Moses, this is a really good example. It shouldn't surprise you and I who sit outside of Scripture and are able to look at the entirety of the Bible at once that this is the way that God always does it. Obviously for Moses, it's a surprise, as I think it would be a surprise for any of us if God caught our, I don't know, living room plants on fire and started talking to us out of them. We might be like, not sure I'm the guy. God might want to go with somebody else. But in a broader sense, it makes sense for God to do this because just to give you an analogy, if we we're going to have a mountain bike race, and, and I, I'm riding a, like a $1,400 mountain bike, and I smoke you. Like, I beat you by like a minute and a half, which I think is a lot in a bike race, I think. Uh, I'm not going to get a ton of credit for that, right? Like, it's going to be a bummer to you that I lost, but you're going to be like, if I, had a, if I had that much money to spend on a mountain bike, I probably would have hung a little bit better, too. But if I beat you by a minute and a half on like an $80 bike from Kmart... I'm going to get a lot of credit for that, aren't I? Right? Especially if the wheels break off and it I doesn't even come with pedals and I start going the wrong way because the bike was turned backwards. Like, if those things happen, it's going to be a much more interesting story and it's going to teach you more about me if I'm able to over overcome the limits of the tool that I'm using to do that. So, Moses is a bargain bin bicycle in this story. Uh, he's a goodwill purchase. He is. He's just, he's, a, he's an okay guy, he's already old. He's not terribly self-confident. He was willing to abandon his identity to get away from the pressure of his responsibilities, totally change himself. And God is intentionally choosing someone weak in order to make himself more fully known. If God was going to use the Ferrari of prophets, that guy's going to get the credit. This happens in a lot of our modern churches. We have these incredibly gifted public communicators. They're, they dress sharp. They're handsome. They never make any mistakes. Nobody can ever catch them doing anything wrong. And at their churches, it's a lot about them. They write books and people want to read those books. They speak at conferences. People fly across the United States to go to those conferences. Those people could worship God anywhere. So if it was about God, they've already got what they need. 
but it becomes about these people quickly. And I think that God is willing and eager to use weak people like you and me who don't have a lot to offer him because that's how he demonstrates that he's here. That's how he shows that he can do anything is he can use anybody, even broken people. There's a really common old saying from the Puritan times where they would say that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And he does. He points back to himself. He uses people like you and I. So I would ask you today, what makes you weak? What is it about you that you hope nobody else will know? Because God already knows it. And if you believe in Jesus, God has already chosen you and he's accepted that weakness about you. And if it bugs him bad enough, he can fix it, okay? He'll do that. He doesn't need you to fix yourself. I wonder if maybe you're shy like Moses is. Maybe you have a good reason for that. Maybe it's a personality. Maybe it's your mouth. It just doesn't work the right way. Are you an anxious person? Are you depressed? Do you loathe yourself? I believe there are people in this church who probably do and would be scared to death to admit that to anybody else. Do you have suicidal thoughts? Do you carry deep, old secrets with you wherever you go? Are you a victim, but you don't want anybody to see you that way? Are you deeply lonely? Are you fatalistic? Are you a pessimist? Are you chronically ill? Are you scared of commitment? Are you a liar? Are you too guarded to let other people into your life? Maybe you're unsure about the gender you were assigned at birth. Maybe you're questioning your sexuality. Maybe you're a lifelong member of another religion or faith, but you're having doubts, and that's the whole reason that you're even giving this a chance today. Maybe you were raised in the church, but you're having doubts, and you'd really like to be somewhere else right now, but you're scared to death of what it would do to your social standing and your relationships to act on that. Maybe you live with regret, or you're driven by bitterness, or hatred, or rage. What this story tells me is that you cannot get in God's way. You're not weak enough to mess up what he's doing. You can't keep God from getting to anybody else, and you can't ultimately keep God from getting to you. If God has his eye on you today, it's only a matter of time. He is coming for you. Frankly, he already came for you. He did the work. But he will also come for you because he's not limited by your weakness. He sees it. And when God chooses you, he also chooses your weakness. And as I said before, I mean this. If that weakness bothers him, if that weakness is sin, he will fix that. He will change it. He will transform your life. He loves to do that. But what we oftentimes do is try to protect other people and even God and even the gospel from our own weakness. And God has not asked us to do that. God has not asked us to be really, really careful so we don't mess it up. He has said, talk about this thing that happened to you. Tell other people. Live differently. Do what you can. And when you're wrong, repent and know that because Jesus is already dead, you'll be forgiven. It's done. Your relationship won't be permanently damaged. God might fix what bothers you. He might not. He might fix your weakness. He might not. And he might send you anyway. Let's finish the story. Verse 18. Moses walks down off the mountain with God. And he has a little powwow with his father-in-law, Jethro, a good man. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go then, go in peace. And then the Lord spoke to Moses in Midian and said, Now is the time for you to go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Good choice, Moses. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I'm telling you, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is the first moment that God has revealed what's really going on in this book. Yes, it's about God setting his people free. Yes, it's about God using weak Moses. But truly, the greatest conflict and the turning point for these people will be watching the Pharaoh of Egypt knocked down peg by peg by peg by God. 
Moses will lose his deity. He never really had it, but the people will stop seeing him as God. That is good news for God's people and the people of Egypt. All of the other deities of Egypt, we're going to get there starting in chapter 7, they will be attacked directly by the plagues. You may not know that. The plagues are not just weird, random, random things God made up. He doesn't have plague dice in heaven that he rolls, and he goes, oh, it's flies. We're going to send flies. Each of the ten plagues knocks off a major god of Egypt. And we're going to take our time. We're going to go through one per week and, and really dig into those in the idolatry in our own culture and civilization that I believe God is knocking down as well. But this is the moment where God finally admits this is going to be big and I have a plan and it's part of my plan that this guy doesn't let you go right away because I have a lot of power that I need to show both my people and the people of Egypt and the world. He says in verse 22, Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And so I say to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, then behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That is God's warning for the Pharaoh. Now we know how the story ends, right? That's going to end up happening. It's going to take a while. The Pharaoh doesn't believe how it's going to go. But God does have a plan to set his people free. And he's willing to take extreme measures. He's incredibly effective at, at getting what he wants. And what that should tell you and I is, no, God is not limited by your experience. He can do things you don't expect. God is not limited by your weakness. In fact, in your weakness, we find strength, right? That's what Paul says in the New Testament, that the power of Christ is made manifest, it's made known. But God is also not limited by anybody's power. Nobody anywhere. So it's not just how weak you are. It's not just how inexperienced you may be. But sometimes we tell ourselves that there are real things that exist in the world, establishments, Laws, governments, nations, movements, ideas, philosophies that are too dense, that are too harsh, that are too dark for God to either overthrow them or redeem them, and it's not true. God can do anything, anytime. When God's people cried out to him in chapter 2, he bent low to hear them, and he examined Egypt, and he saw Pharaoh, and he saw the gods of Egypt. And he decided that the way he would set his people free would be to put his power and total control on display. So in verse 23, God now refers to the nation of Israel as his child, and this is the first time that he does that in the Bible. Never before has he seen this nation as his offspring. Now, he kind of hints at this when he gives the covenant to Abraham, but he decides here to claim this nation as his own. He's grown the nation while they've been in captivity in Egypt, and now they are his, and he will be invested in their life. He will take personally what happens to them from now on in the Bible. The book of Hosea spotlights human relationships as ways that we can see and experience the love of God in our own lives. And in Hosea 11, God says this about Israel. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. He's speaking of this nation of people as an individual for the sake of allegory. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, though, the more they went away. And they continued to sacrifice to the Baals, and they burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, which is another word for Israel, to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. God is very loving. He's kind. He's deeply involved in the life of this nation. Israel is God's firstborn because they were the first nation to be God's people, and today, under the new covenant of Jesus, they are joined by people from all over the world, which is most of us in this room. Our heritage, our ethnicity is, is incredibly diverse. We come from all over the place, and yet we can still be a part of what God is doing because God's kingdom is no longer defined as just one physical location, one group of people in one country, but it's now anywhere that anybody calls on the name of Jesus and believes and is saved. 
So God's plan is to adopt children, children who belong to death and self-destruction, and to do that through Jesus' power. And nobody has enough power to stop him from doing that. This is the message of Exodus 3, through 23. If anybody attempts to stop God to prevent him from getting to his adopted children, they will fail. And because his objective is to make himself known, he will bring about their failure in a way that will not allow them to deny him when he is done. God will demand that Pharaoh allow Israel to go free, and Pharaoh will refuse. And Egypt will, as a result, collectively lose their firstborn. This is the tenth and final plague. And the judgment matches the crime. Pharaoh abuses God's firstborn, so Pharaoh's firstborn will have to die. And despite the incredible wickedness of humanity then and now, God still will not be stopped. He can't be. Even though the sum total of all of our wickedness demands that God destroy us and write humanity off as a failed experiment, which he gets very close to doing a little later on in the book of Exodus, but he has grace, he has patience. We who reject and mock Jesus, we in our society who are so sure that we know what is best for us, we who write off God's word as antiquated or irrelevant or too strict for our modern civilization, can any of us, could even all of us together limit God's power? Can we stop his plan? If we all got together, everybody on the whole planet, and we raised our angry fists in the air and shouted at the sky that there is no God and there never has been, it wouldn't stop God for a second. God doesn't need our faith. He's not Santa Claus. He's not powered by the goodwill wishes of little children. He's real, and he moves, and he does what he wants to do, and he's very effective at that. God would be justified if we did that to obliterate every one of us, to wipe us out of existence, and he would be able to continue on in excellence and beauty and worthiness for eternity. He doesn't need us to have those things, but we're still here. So how does that work? We have abused and rejected God's firstborn, Israel, then Jesus, then the church. Shouldn't that mean that our firstborn should have to die? Well, this is where the gospel comes into play. Grace is the only way that this rule doesn't work its way out in our lives. Instead of our firstborn dying, the firstborn of the new creation dies, Jesus. The New Testament fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy about Israel died. Jesus, the Son of God, died in the place of all of our sons and daughters so that the full damnation of our sin would be executed to its fullest extent. That God wouldn't ignore what's wrong but that somehow we would all survive. Grace is the only way that we don't pay for what we owe God. Grace is the only way that we live until tomorrow. Grace is God making himself weak enough to die like a rebel in our place. So what that tells me is God is so strong that even our stubborn, ignorant, legalistic, mystical, self-exalting idolatry cannot limit his power. It cannot limit his ability to save his children or to have justice on all their wickedness, both at the same time. It doesn't matter what we expect. It doesn't matter how broken we think we are, how weak we feel, and it doesn't matter how strong anybody anywhere else gets. God always gets what he wants. That's the lesson for today. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for a chance to be in your word today. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us about how much larger you are than we think, how much more capable you are than we expect you to be. We ask, Father, that you would introduce yourself to us in a way that we can actually experience you. I don't want to miss that in this story, that there's an element of who God is where he doesn't take a bunch of time to explain himself theologically or doctrinally. He simply says, here's who I am, and I'm going to be with you, and that's enough. So God, let us work and mature and have the right high ideals, but let us be removed enough from those ideas that our feet are still on the ground, that we still have a daily lived-in experience with you, that we aren't studying you like some other God of some other pantheon who's a dead idea, but that we know you personally. That's what we're asking for. 
So God, would you renew in us a desire to know you? Would you remind us throughout our days how we can meet with you? And would you continue to demonstrate to us that you're larger than what we've seen so far? You can do more than we can imagine. That our weakness can't get in the way of you working in our lives. And that ultimately, God, nobody can stop you. That is our greatest hope. So Father, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, believing that they will come true if they're your will. Amen.